0: Mr. Pontier, I'm gonna turn that off. Good. Good, morning. good morning, it's great to see you today. I've stopped asking everybody how you slept, <laughs> I've started asking um, the opposite question, did you get any sleep? First night is always the toughest, you learn the mistakes of not bringing your own pillow. By the way, I have an extra fan, if anybody needs a fan. Glad to help you. I cannot see you. Can you stand up? What do you mean? What ca- well, you've got to get a taller chair, Mr. Derue. Uh, how's that? Do you see me now? Not thought you really want to see me in this crazy Hawaiian shirt getting in touch with my inner Calvary Chapel pastor. (laughs) Good. I saw who else? Mike Babcock is sporting a very sharp-looking Hawaiian shirt. Okay. Uh, Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. It was great that you you were talking about uh, Calvinists, don't worry, except for about what other Christians think. That's uh, exactly up our alley, what we're going to be getting into in our opening illustration. This uh, August, I will celebrate 35 years of being a Christian. I didn't come to the Lord until I was 20, raised in an unbelieving home, and uh, several years later uh, began attending a Christian college where during my freshman year was introduced by a a pretty girl to um, the doctrines of grace and uh, later married her and then also began to read a book called The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, which began to open up some of the wonders and riches of the Bible, of the greatness and glory of God, introduced to the great theologians of the past and so forth, and in good Calvinist um, style began to um, insist that everybody else see what I see and imposing my Calvinism on others and had a lot of very interesting conversations with uh, folks on that largely Arminian campus. I'll never forget the conversation I had with one fellow. We got into this discussion about the whole point of why did God make the world? And I kept on insisting that it's all for his glory, that he is at the center, and you need to have a bigger view of God. And I said, well, why do you think God made the world? And I'll never forget his response. He said, because God was lonely. My chin still hurts from where it hit the cement, and I had to pick it back up. Um, A shallow and short-sighted view of God is not new to our generation. These things that we're talking about getting into the deeper things of God, having a very God-centered vision, um, is something that has been needed in every generation Martin Luther said of Erasmus, he said, Your thoughts of God are too human. They are too human. Our God is too small. And I hope that as the attributes of God are, are taught and extolled, that we might uh, have shaken from us those two human thoughts about the wonderful God who's revealed himself, both in the world that he has made, but more uniquely and more clearly in the pages of Holy Scripture. Let's have a word of prayer as we get into our our talk today. Father, thank you for your mercies to us and how you've revealed yourself in your glory, your majesty, your power. Lord, may we be refreshed by the awe of who you are again this day. Each and every day, Lord, shows forth your glory. The heavens declare, Lord, your, your wonderful person. We thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day that you've given to us and we pray, Lord, that we would take this time to set, our, our, set aside the things that might distract, to fix our eyes upon our glorious triune God. Lord Jesus, be pleased to forgive us of our sins and draw us near to the wonders of, of the deity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to um, revisit a little bit from last night's talk about uh, the attributes. We have to be reminded all the time as we're thinking about God that God does not fit into our minds. We are creaturely, we are limited. Everything is in a scope that is very, very small in contrast to God. We, any attempt to try to just simply stretch God out to our scale is, is, uh, is futile. He dwells in eternity, says the Scripture. Not to say that eternity is some separate uh, Entity from him, but that he is from everlasting to everlasting God. Time does not apply to him, space does not apply to him. His being, as we're going to see later in the talks, is endless, he is infinite, and his presence is everywhere personally. Increase and decrease, addition and subtraction do not apply to the being of God, and we cannot even get our minds to completely understand that. Now, the world that He has made, a world that is made of space and time and change, is real, but it all hangs and hangs perfectly upon Him in whom we live and move and have our being. And then God being his attributes, then, that we saw last night. There's a complex of them, and yet he who is his attributes is simplex. He does not have parts like we do. We're made up of both flesh and spirit. And God does not have these extensions. He doesn't have a core with these attributes that go out in different directions. Scholastics have tried to fold all of these various uh, qualities or attributes of God into one another and make them identical. The theologian uh, uh, Berkhoff says that there is an interpenetration of them, but no collapsing of them into one another. Then one more uh, footnote, and wow, what a footnote. Uh, Most, um, we must not view the attributes mechanically. We are thinking about a person, we are thinking about somebody who is not just this giant, hard-to-understand thing. God is spirit. He is not some static puzzle that we're trying to put together. Um, let not God's incomprehensibility, his inscrutable nature, blind you from his being. The, he is the living God. He is um, a most pure spirit. He is personal. He is one to have a relationship with. Uh, Not a single part of his infinite being is impersonal. He is not a thing. So with that background a little bit, let's turn our attention now to the independence of the unique and exclusive triune God of Scripture as we read from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, looking at verses 13 through 15. Please follow along as I read from God's holy word. And Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, that is, the I Am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. And then look over at chapter 6 for further information about this name. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, that's El Shaddai. But by my name Yahweh, or I am, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians were holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the I am. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Again, Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. The great I am. This is a glorious name. All that the the Lord is is stated forth before us here in this wonderful name. All that the Lord is, all that he thinks, all that he purposes, all that he brings to pass, all that he does and does not do um, is all uh, set here in this wonderful name of uh, of Jehovah. And that's the independency that is the uniqueness uh, of God here. All that he is and does is consistent with himself on the one hand, and on the other, he is independent over all of his creation, all of his handiwork. That uh, independency is based upon his own self-sufficiency. He is not deriving help from any other quarter. This comes from his own self-existence. I am. One author, Matthew Henry, says, Being self-existent, God cannot be but self-sufficient, and therefore all-sufficient, and the inexhaustible fountain of being and of bliss. Everything comes from Him. So He is the God who is in the most absolute sense. And it should be easy for us to see that the, uh, the incomparables of His attributes, as we're looking at these, nobody else comes close to what I am has. Um, That is all which makes God, God. Take any of the attributes away, take any of his qualities away, and we diminish him. He loses, as it were, his deity, and probably nowhere so much as when we put our hand to the ark of his self-existence and his independence. When we make God somehow contingent upon this world, upon us, we can be assured that we are involved in idolatry. Idolatry is one massive effort on mankind's part to try to manipulate God, to bring God down to our level, to put Him beneath us, to put ourselves over Him. And that is a dangerous game to play. So we talk about these attributes, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, But here we're stepping back and talking about His omnisufficiency. God is absolutely sufficient to uphold this creation because of His nature, of who He is in and of Himself. And there is no name and no title that brings this out like Yahweh, a name that is formed from the Hebrew stative verb to be. What's your name? I am how full and yet how, how uh, simple that statement is. He uh, is what he has always been. He is what he always shall be. There is no change. There is no addition to the one who is I am. And because he is in no way like the gods of the, of the earth, like the gods of the Egyptians, as this is being uh, revealed to the children of Israel in slavery there, He's not dependent upon the conditions and circumstances to lift them out of their bondage. He's not saying, this isn't the right time for for me to work. I can't work here because the circumstances aren't aren't right. In very truth, all the creation, all which he has made, is absolutely dependent upon him. It depends upon him. Everything, as Romans 11.36 says so wonderfully, everything is of him and through him, and to him, to whom belongs the glory. God in his name, revealed from uh, for creation, but manifested fully this name uh, Yahweh to Moses. We have the, the word Yahweh appearing all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. We have it used all throughout the book of Genesis, and now it comes forth in its fullness and richness. It stands for God's own Self-sufficiency being brought to bear in his self-commitment, his faithful, loving, gracious loyalty towards his own beloved people. And that love and that care for us is not dependent upon our circumstances or upon us, but upon him. That very interesting uh, Hebrew word hesed, this uh, loving kindness. Uh, the, the, uh, basically, it's the, the gracious love of God is all built uh, from him and in him. And that is given to those who trust in him, who live by him, who are regenerated, justified, and sanctified and will be glorified. And thus this name speaks first of his own self-existence, his absoluteness in himself. We don't make God God. We cannot add unto him in in any kind of a way. He is fully God God. And that brings us to the, the word in your outline there, the word that theologians love to, to use, the word seity, the aseity of God. How many of you have heard that, name, that word before? About half of you. Awesome. You should get familiar with this. The aseity of God speaks about the, uh, of God's own self-existence. He does not lean upon the creation; does not lean upon any other. Totally opposite to all idolatry, where your god had to be put up on the shelf and cleaned. It was funny; I was talking about that girl Rin yesterday, and uh, she talked. Basically, they had to change that little little god's diapers every day. You put food up there, and it rotted, and you had to clean them off. Any kind of a god you make has to be carried around. It's your work to support the god, instead of God supporting you. Everything is is backwards from what the Bible teaches, from what the true God has revealed. And we know why that is. It's because of our sin. So, aseity is a favorite term of God's independence, his existence, dependent upon none. The root aseita from a and say has is the idea of through himself, through himself, a se ipso, of one's own self. Bovink comments on this this passage as we talk about all that we are and have is not of ourselves as creatures, but God alone has this quality of aseity. He says, He is that He is in all the infinite fullness of His being. He does not grow older. He does not increase or decrease in being or power. He is from eternity to eternity, the same in essence, and in all His virtues, in His mind and will, His love and life, the absolute fullness and self-sufficient God. Yahweh's self-sufficiency is in Himself. He alone is self-dependent. Although I I don't even just again using human language, we talk about God being self-dependent. Does God depend on Himself? Have you ever thought about that? The idea of dependence—I'm not really sure you can ascribe to God. What part of God is is depending upon Himself? Is He 100% depending upon Himself? 100%. What part of God is dependent? What part isn't? Again, we get into questions that start to hurt our brains. My professor in seminary said, sometimes we have thoughts that are like rubber bands in our minds, and we stretch them and they never go back. I don't know what he meant by that, but I think it's pretty interesting. <laughs> God steps from... Uh, the, so we go from his aseity then, his, his self-existence, um, to the field then of his independence... And that's a wider field than his his aseity, Uh, his uh, um, creating, maintaining, uh, uh, and consummating all his creation from a position of independence over and above all that he has made. And coming back to the name of I Am, he is... is, um, he does not depend upon any of his creation, but at the same time, it's manifested then as the specially able and full redeemer of weak, helpless, enslaved Israel. They could not free themselves. They could not just march out of uh, chains that, they, that bound them to Pharaoh's throne. And so you see that name is exalted in the first exodus. Exodus. Exalted over Pharaoh, where God Himself says, "You who think that you were in all of your might and glory, one of the most powerful pharaohs, I have raised you up, in order to put you down. I am going to glorify my name. I am going to lift high my arm. He is going to do, um, bring judgment freely, independently upon the gods of Egypt. You look at all those ten plagues. If you research those plagues, you find behind all of those various elements." parts of Egyptian worship. This is a battle of the gods that's going on in in the opening chapters of Exodus. It's ultimately between God, the true God, and his son, Israel, and Pharaoh and his firstborn. And we know who wins as God brings his people into liberty, out of the house of bondage. You You see it in the first Exodus but I want you to see how God's name is wonderfully exalted and manifested independently, strongly for his people in the second exodus. You know, there are two exoduses, the one that brings them out of Egypt and into the promised land and the one that brings them back from Babylon in, uh, in the, in the, in the, after the captivity and brings them back to their land. Would you look with me at a, a couple of verses in the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 present for us something of a a beautiful necklace of the independence of God over all of his creation, over all of his enemies, that he alone is God and there is none like him. Some of my favorite portions of the Bible. If you ever have small views of God, start meditating on Isaiah 40. Start looking at the riches of this wonderful passage I just want to highlight a couple of them. Let's begin in chapter 42 and verse 8. I am the I am. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And so, this insistence of the exclusivity of God, who alone deserves to be called God, God is God. And to be honored as such is a theme then that just echoes all throughout here. The exclusive glory of his independence, his self-existent, in his being, in his actions. This note of exclusivity. No other is worthy of worship or adoration or being considered as God is found then all throughout this section. Look back with me at Isaiah chapter 40 and look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? And he goes on and dis- discusses idolatry. In fact, this, is, uh, this section deals most fully with, uh, with how we are, are to look upon idolatry. It's one of the richest portions of the, of the, of the Word of God. J. Gresson Machen talked about, um, wrote, a, wrote a sermon called Isaiah's Scorn of Idolatry, taken from these passages. Look down at verse 25 and following. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. It's a remarkable thing that our God has made the stars. He calls them all by name. That is a remarkable thing when you think about how many stars there are. That if we in this room here started counting stars one per minute, you know how long it would take before we named all the stars? We'd all be dead. Long dead if we named a star, each one of us, every minute for the rest of our lives. It's remarkable. And God has made them all. Look over at chapter 43 and verses uh, uh, 10 through 13. You are my witnesses, declares the I am, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord. There it is. I am. And there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the, the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? There's His independency. There's His power, absolute, over all things. Isaiah 44, 6-8. through 8, Thus says the I Am, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the I Am of hosts, that is Yahweh Sabaoth, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Let's take a little footnote here. Back when I pastored in New York, we had a young man fell in love with a a Mormon girl. And all of a sudden, Mormonism became a, a higher form of Christianity to him for some reason. It's remarkable what girls will do to men. This kid, I, I, this kid was so today, he would challenge everything in Sunday school. Every, every point of doctrine, everything. He said, show me from the Bible. But man, when he saw this girl, that just went out the window. And all of a sudden, Mormonism is a cool thing. And uh, long story short, I brought him to this verse. Because Mormonism teaches that there are a lot of gods and the reason why God is not telling us about these lots of gods is because it just wouldn't be helpful to us. But here in this passage, God says, there are no gods next to me. He says it in a very solemn fashion. And so if Mormonism is true, this is just a flat-out lie from the God of Scripture, and God would never do such. Thankfully, later on, he repented. He came back, and he said, Pass- we, we, we wound up having to excommunicate him, sadly, to the grief of us and to his family, and later he came back to the Lord. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, where was I? Verse 7 Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yeah, yeah, yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming. And the events that are going to take place. Prophecy in this passage. This portion of Isaiah which was anticipating and looking forward to the time that that Israel would be in bondage. When they came into Babylon, this love letter was waiting for them. And God tells them that he will bring them back. Verse 8, do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. Chapter 45, look over at verses 5 through 7. Speaking about raising up Cyrus, he is the, the, the key that opens the door. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the I am, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing darkness well-being or peace and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And then uh, drop down to verse 18. Thus says the I am who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. And then one other passage down in verse 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has announced this from of old, who has long since declared it, it, it. Is it not I, the Lord, the I am? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Allegiance. And they will say of me, only in the Lord our righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, will be justified and will glory. Of course, you have a keen eye to recognize verse 23. is applied to our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Yahweh. Come in the flesh. Applied to him. You can also add in 46, verse 5. To whom then will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? And verses 9 and 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times which has not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, and so forth. Look at what God did to Babylon. Look at how he fulfilled his word, bringing his people out. Such a glorious uh, uh, deliverance which ultimately becomes a picture of God delivering us out of the Babylon of this world in the book of Revelation. Um, What a rock, what an eternal rock is found in the independent, self-sufficient God of Scripture, the one who kills and makes alive, the one who strikes and who heals. The Lord's sovereignty then over all enters into the picture. His absoluteness is manifested not by abdicating His sufficiency or giving His glory to another, but by making that independence the foundation of His people's salvation that is through Himself, through His Son, as we might call Him the Father's second self, He who is the exact image of the Father's glory. We don't have the time to speak this morning to uh, the connection between God and His creatures and how He does manifest that His independent, self-existent uh, ways and, and His glory in this world. Um, how does God uphold all things? How do we live and move and have our being within Him? What are the connections that are there? There's great mystery involved in providence of how God, God controls Ultimately, everything, the dust of the ground, every atom, everything that he has made has its being in him and is directed by his hand. How does he do that? How does God direct everything? How does God rule that everything that happens in our lives is exactly according to his good and sovereign purpose? Anybody? (laughs) I have a theory. Uh Uh-oh, everybody goes, If we could understand just that power that he has in making everything out of nothing, if we could just get that down, then I think we could understand better how he controls everything that he has made. So if you get that one, then you can figure out the other one. But we can't get the first one, so we're not going to get the second one. God's power is inscrutable of how he holds all things together. Um, There are many such wonderful unions that we find in this world. What connects your soul to your body? Where is that connection that you find within yourself? It's there, but how to explain it defies our abilities. But what is certain is his independent rule and hold on all things is certainly wonderfully complex. God has absolute powers, and yet second causes are not thereby dismissed, uh, but rather established by, by him. God is still a God of means, and why not? He has made this world good. Very good indeed. And so he uses means, and so should we, As but not resting in the means, resting in the God of means. What we are getting at then is how God shares and manifests himself in the world. And it's not then by taking away from him, nor by adding to him to fill some kind of deficiency, like that fellow I mentioned at the beginning, as though God were lonely. God loves to share himself with um, his Creatures. Um, I cannot think of a better description summarizing the rich biblical view than that which is captured in our own confession of faith. I've put that portion for you in your outline. Look at how wonderfully crafted this statement is of how God brings forth Himself in contact with His world. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself and is alone in and unto himself, all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. Now that's a bumper sticker. It's a little long. That's a wonderfully crafted statement that everything will glorify God. Everything must glorify God. It's interesting how atheists lately have used God's attributes against us. They get us into this little bind of if God is great, then he cannot be good. And if God is good then he cannot be great. They're kind of taking, generally speaking, the incommunicable versus the communicable. If God is great, then why doesn't he do something about all the terrible things going on in the world? He must be bad because he's he's just standing by as All these atrocities happen. And on the other hand, if you say that you insist that he is good, then he must be weak because if he could do something about this and he really is a good God, then he would do it. Um, the glaring and missing piece in all of that, of course, in that syllogism, is just this little thing called the fall and how horrible sin is and the wrath of God that we deserve. The, the nature of, of the evil of sin is taken out of that, and it's really we just, we're, we're good people in this world, and isn't it just so bad that God doesn't come to our rescue? And that's not the picture at all. In the right worldview, it's not the problem of evil. Why do uh, such bad things happen to good people? But the problem of good, how can an all holy, perfect God do anything for those who deserve hell but to send them there? The problem of good. We shouldn't accept this great and, and good as the concepts before us, but rather follow the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11. God glorifies himself in a way of justice or of grace. We need to bring unbelievers into that kind of a paradigm. God, we have a problem with sin. We have a problem with God's justice. God will be just. Either you pay for your sins in hell forever, or Christ pays for your sins, and you go to glory. And the fact that there's any hesitation on our parts to flee to Christ proves our depravity. So, God glorifies Himself in this way, a way of justice. He will get glory upon the wicked. He will glorify His justice. and more, But more delightfully, not only for us, but for Him, is in His glorifying Himself in grace. Both, wrestle, uh, both vessels of wrath and salvation bring forth glory to Him. He who is the end of all of His creation... God will exalt his name supremely to all eternity. He cannot give his glory, his praise, his worship to another. Why that would be, if God were to do that, think about it. If God made anything else the end of creation, that would almost be idolatry on his part, wouldn't it? God knows his own worthiness. God knows his own perfections. He perfectly knows his perfectly appropriate worthiness uh, to his... uh, uh, unmistakable majesty, and for him to allow that to be less would be wrong in his part. Who else should or be uh, should be uh, supreme? Who else should be first? Who else should be the end or the goal of this world? And men and devils, they raise their hands and they say, "It should be us. We should be the end. We should be the kings. We should be the center." The Bible teaches, and we should believe even from common sense, that God is the proper end. Jonathan Edwards has this great illustration. He says, let's let's think this through for a second. Who is is to have the glory? This independent, self-existent God, or all of his works, his creation that is absolutely hanging upon him? He says, imagine a third being could step outside of this, this whole picture and have a scale, and you put God... And all of his glory and majesty on the one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale, you put all of his creation, all of his universe, every single stitch of which depends upon him. Every single bit of it. Who should have the glory? Who should have the chief end? Who should be the, 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 uh, uh, the, the majesty and hold the, the glory in all of that? I think that that's such a great example God, you know, John Blanchard said that God without man is still God. But man without God is nothing. There is no God. There's nothing. No God? nada. I don't know which philosopher it was who said this, and I find it such a sad and amusing statement. Uh, he was talking about his, his worldview, and he doesn't believe in God, naturalistic worldview. And he, at the end, he, I can just imagine him stroking his beard and going, the only problem with my, my system is, why is there something and not nothing? It <laughs> makes me want to laugh and weep at the same time. If you don't know why there's something and not nothing, you're back to that little girl going, where'd the corn come from? And you should not be teaching Philosophy. All created being is contained in him. It's not identical with him, but it is dependent upon him. There, in a sense, was never nothing. There's always been not something, but someone. And by the way, as we talk about nothing. Can you conceptualize nothing? Before the world was made, we talk about creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Can you think about nothing created? No spe- We usually kind of think of it as a big dark space. But there was no darkness. There was no space. There was nada. But there wasn't just nada. There was God from everlasting, for whom time and space does not apply. Um, Nothing. No God. God is the everlasting God is the someone. So there is really, ultimately, no such thing as nothing. Jonathan Edwards said that nothing is what sleeping rocks dream of. (laughs) Again, I don't understand what he's talking about there, but (laughs) it just sounds really cool. Uh, God is God, and he is supremely so. He is a supreme being, or essay. He is a supreme verum, the truth he is the supreme bonum. He is the supreme good. Summum Dei. And in your outlines you have sumum sumarum. He is the all in all, the sum of sums, the absolute, the sinquanon, without which nothing. But with whom, for those who know him, believe upon him and his son, who love him in the splendid gospel of Jesus Christ, the God-man, well, dear ones, have we not? We have found the life of life. We have found the truth of this world. We have found the answer that little girl had, and which I had, thirty-five years ago, asking the question, "Why? What is this world about?" Everything around us, this beautiful creation, just cries out—splendor and beauty and majesty and meaning. we in our poor, unbelieving state are walking around blind going, we see it, but we don't understand it. And the answer is right here. God reveals himself so profoundly. I want to close with a quote from my favorite theologian. If you want to study the doctrine of God, some of my colleagues in the Presbytery can come and correct me later, but I I don't think anybody touches the teachings of Herman Bobink. Bavink's teaching on the doctrine of God is just, I think it's just, it's the cream. Listen to what he has to say, talking about God's goodness. His goodness is one with his absolute perfection. In him, both the idea and the reality are one. He is pure, purest, uh, purest life, purest actuality. He does not need to become anything for whatever he is. He is eternally He does not have a purpose outside of himself, but is sufficient, sufficient, all-sufficient, self-sufficient. He receives nothing. He only gives. Everything is dependent upon him. He is dependent upon nothing. He does everything with a view to himself because he cannot rest in anything less than himself. As he is himself, the absolutely good, the perfect one, he cannot and may not love anything else except with a view to himself. He cannot and may not be satisfied with anything less than absolute perfection. And when he loves others, he loves himself in them, his own virtues and works and gifts. And hence he is absolutely blessed in himself, the sum total of all goodness, of all perfection. God glorifies himself by giving himself as the independent supreme God and Savior in his only begotten Son. He shares his life and eternal life through his son's incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation. So he glorifies himself in this way, and we glorify him in dependence upon him as he is offered freely to us in the everlasting gospel. I'll close with this. One of my favorite authors I've been reading, he asks the most what's the word? He asks questions that are inappropriate. <laughs> He's asked very driving, just heart-wrenching questions. A man by the name of Thomas Adam. He's got a little book that's been printed, and it, um, it talks about his pr- private thoughts of his that were never meant to be uh, printed. And somebody printed them. On the, on the back of it, it says, This is the most humbling book you will ever read. And I'm sitting here, I'll tell you a story, but I'm sitting here looking at this book, and my friend Patrick Ramsey will swear that this didn't happen, but I know that it did. I'm sitting here looking at this. It says, this is, the most hum- this is the most humbling book you will ever read. And he said, BJ, you really need that book. <laughs> at least that's how it came across to me. He just said it was a really good book. But I keep on saying, no, you said I need this book. And I realized at that point there was no right answer to that question. If I said no, I need this book, then I'm being arrogant. So I bought the book. <laughs> but this is what Thomas Adams says, Thomas Adams said that if God were to offer me to have my sufficiency in myself, I would not want it for a million worlds. God being my independent, full sufficiency is so far better. And living dependently upon him is the most glorifying life. Amen? What time do we have, Mr. Camp Director? It's time? Do we, do we not take questions? What, what time is it? Is it 10.30? We're done. I would, you would ask me questions, I would have said, I don't know anyways.